I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a coke and keep it company. That's the real thing. Hello and welcome to Patented. A musical podcast today, not really, about the history of inventions brought to you by History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Hey, everyone knows about Coca-Cola. It's the most recognisable drink on the planet, maybe other than water. It's certainly the biggest, most recognisable brand on the planet, arguably. However, its origin story, well, not everyone knows that, and it's quite often surrounded in myth and urban legend. But this is what we do know. Cast your minds back to 1886. We're in the Civil War and a man named John Pemberton, a Civil War veteran and skilled pharmacist, has become addicted to morphine and painkillers from the injuries sustained in the war. And he wants to create a tonic, a pick-me-up, a drink, which will alleviate fatigue and headaches. And he's looking for a source of energy. Little does he know that in his backyard, he's concocting a drink, a beverage, which will go on to become none other than Coca-Cola. Anyway, today I am joined by the author of Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. It's Bart Elmore. He is a professor, an award-winning writer who investigates the impact of big business on our environment. I hope you enjoy the episode. Bart, welcome to the show. Lovely to see you. Lovely to lovely to have you. Oh, please. This is a gift. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I don't know if it is a gift. Hey, you've just been to Death Valley. We were just discussing Death Valley. You're an environmental historian. So were you in Death Valley on environmental business reasons? As in, this is history. It's going to be the hottest place on earth. Exactly the opposite. I was actually taking pictures of all the chaos of everyone smiling in front of this sign showing you know, how hot it was while I was yeah. thinking... You know, I'm not so sure I'd be smiling. And then, yes, we hit some kind of record. Not sure exactly what. It seems like there's complications with the history. But, you know, got pulled into a picture and thought, this is probably the worst picture an environmental historian could take. So, yeah. Well, well, yeah, when they're out to get you, they'll use that picture. Exactly. Go, Aha! <laughs> See, he loves it that it's so hot. <laughs> exactly. You know, my favorite, not my favorite place at all, but my favorite thing is when you're driving from LA to Vegas and you don't go via Death Valley, but you, that road, mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the town. Is it Baker? They've got like a giant thermometer. And the game was always like, guess how crazily hot it's going to be. And I just love the idea that when they're thinking, right, we need to put our town on the map. What are we going to have? I know. Let's have a giant thermometer. Well, growing up in hot Atlanta, you know, that's where I, oh, God. which is relevant to Coca-Cola. That was a different type of heat in the sense that I found that 133 was like weirdly manageable because there was no humidity. And that's the key, right? You feel like you're in a sauna otherwise, right? So, but Dallas though, I mean, was there like an interest in Texas, you know, given your name? No, come on, for God's sake. No, 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 no. <laughs> Look, think about every place name in America. It's got another place 
in the UK. Exactly. There you go. So Dallas, it's a name. It's just a name. It's actually Elginshire. Elgin in Scotland, there's a little town called Dallas. So I think lots of Scots emigrated to Texas because actually Houston as well as a Scottish town and Dallas is a Scottish town and Austin is a Scottish town. So it must have been, I think, an influx of Scots. And, you know, it reminds me that nothing's new in America, you know. I've always been a real America file generally. When I was a kid in the 1970s and the 1980s, we were fed a diet of American TV. So I grew up watching Happy Days and the Dukes of Hazard. It was this kind of wonderful world, you know, where I grew up, it was pretty dull. And America just looked so glamorous and wonderful. And of course, one of the great symbol of America was the Coca-Cola logo. And actually, it was funny because I was just thinking about this. I'm not quite sure what it is about. Is it the visuals of the logo? Like, for example, like in Back to the Future, it's all about Pepsi. And you make the point, you know, Michael Jackson as well was all about Pepsi. And so there was a real Pepsi push, but it never really caught on. There was always this anti-Pepsi thing. Well, here at Ohio State, it's a Coke school. And like many schools I've been at, you know, you have to serve Coke products. And I walk through the contract with the students because we have obviously a very big football team here. And the students said, well, wait a minute, I can drink Gatorade, you know? And I said, well, that is an exemption that was pushed for by the players and everyone else to say, look, we don't like Powerade. So like there are very specific exemptions, but basically if you have any event, you have to serve Coke products. So we're kind of surrounded by it here, even in Ohio, which reminds me of home because, you know, the opposite was true in Atlanta. If someone said Pepsi, you'd just be served a Coke, you know, it was like. (laughs) We'll get on to why Coke is so successful and what the Coke branding means. Will you remind me as well, I want to talk about all the urban legends about Coke. Like did Coke invent Santa? Was that one? My understanding is that it's nonsense, that there may be some truth to the fact that as Sandbaum's Santa that I think was, you know, picked up by Coca-Cola, you know, helped to make that more popular. But my good friend, Mark Pendergrass, who wrote a great book about this, he seemed to have found newspapers going way back before Coke ever adopted that, showing, you know, this kind of rosy cheeked guy who looks just like this Coke Santa was already in the news. Wearing red and white. It was the red and white thing that I always wondered. I was like, well, maybe there is something in that because didn't Santa used to be green right. when Santa was like a German folk tale or whatever the hell. We have to do an episode. I have no idea. You know, whatever. Who patented <laughs> yeah. Santa? I, didn't, you know, I don't know that, but I do know, again, that there were earlier descriptions that folks who were looking at that very closely said, you know what, I think this guy was here way before this. But, you know, Coke's marketing power by that point, by the teens and 20s, you know, was just incredible, in part because of the thesis of this book. If you've outsourced a lot of the cost of making your product, you have a lot of money to spend on marketing and advertising. Because the one for me, again, I'm a bit older than you, I think, but not that much older. No, I'm quite clearly quite much older than you. Just like agreeing as if I know. I just agree. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Like I remember as a kid, that advert, there was something really amazing about that advert. Everyone looked very attractive and American and healthy, and they were, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And it was used that famous song. And do you remember that? The Hilltop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was so much about that. It was massive. It was huge. And I think it was Coke trying to... Hippie Coke. Yeah, Hippie Coke. It was an attempt to do that. If you think about it, Coke's branding became so neutral over time. If you go back to the very beginning, I actually saw this. I was in Walmart's headquarters last week. When we were there, I saw an old sign that you almost never see anymore, the Coke on the side of an old building, probably from the 1950s or 40s. And it had this relieves fatigue, which I thought, whoa, that's crazy because Coke worked really hard to not brand its product as something just for sick people. 
which makes sense because like if you're giving it to people that are just sick, that's not a great brand. You want to be with a good looking, healthy folks. And so Coke really worked on the pause that refreshes. What does that mean? Or always Coca-Cola. The real thing. The real thing. And so, but they liked that, I think, as opposed to taking these stances. Although in that period, there was the suggestion of we're hip, we're cool, you know, we're global entity, we're in tune with the times. But yeah, it was a huge success. You know, I think one of the things is just worth reflecting on is like this company was started as a brain tonic in 1886, a brain tonic, you know, this kind of obscure thing in the Jim Crow South. And it does have staying power. Whether we say it's cool with the young kids, I don't know, we'd have to ask some of the students here. But the fact that it's 1.9 billion servings of its product every single day, every single day, that's incredible, you know? And so I think, you know, part of I think what I was interested in is what gives? Like, how on earth did that happen? How did this little thing become so big? Let's go back to the very beginning. Okay, so once upon a time, there was a world that didn't teach the world to sing or didn't teach the world to buy a Coke. Just take us to that day. Where are we? What's going on? I think it was years in the making, really. I mean, you have this gentleman, John Pemberton. He's kind of growing his business in a town called Columbus, Georgia. He's a pharmacist. Like many people, he's just trying to make money. This little thing called the American Civil War unfolds. Heard of that. Yeah. He's a Confederate supporter. He's defending the city of Columbus in April of 1865, which any, you know, student taking my class now would know that's the end of the Civil War. And he's shot and wounded with a saber and by all accounts becomes addicted to morphine, dealing with the war wounds he deals with after this war. Um, his friends talk about it. They're concerned about his health. Useful that he's a pharmacist. He's got ready supply of most like, of all the jobs I could have had, thank God I'm a pharmacist. You know what? I wonder if it might be the opposite, Dallas, because if you play the story out, he does get addicted to morphine. I think that easy access becomes a kind of... Uh, yes, actually, yeah. We're jumping to it, but you know, the coca leaf and the cocaine that he was interested in, one of my advisors said, oh, it's his methadone. You know, this is his thing that he's trying to use to get off Yes. Of morphine, right? Fentanyl. Yeah. I mean, and you think about that, the darkness of that. On the one hand, this is an era of these patent medicines, which are these kind of quack medicines, uh, snake oils, and you can sell anything you want. There's no FDA. There's no regulatory body saying this, but it'll cure everything. Most of these things were filled with alcohol, to be honest. Most of them were like Kentucky bourbon, pretty strong. And, you know, they made people feel good for the short term, but, you know, probably caused all sorts of other things. So, I mean, in a way, I think of it as a tale of our own time, weirdly. And I'm always reminded of this, that how, how, how much we are still embedded in the past, because he's trying to figure out how to deal with an addiction, really. I mean, one could argue. Was he trying to get off it? Was that the idea? It was like, okay, I'm addicted to morphine, <laughs> which is, it's great morphine. Crikey, you know. I don't <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it was problematic and there was a question of are there other things out there that might be better? And the other thing to note is, and this is a, a thing I've really wanted to stress in my work more broadly, is that the American South is global. I mean, we think of it as this kind of backward, and it is in so many ways, the institutions of Jim Crow and all this that are taking root in that period. But he's reading all these, you know, international conversations about Peruvian coca leaves. Wow. Okay. This comes from this coca shrub from the Andes. Wonder what would happen if we mixed it into a drink. And frankly, he comes to Atlanta, which is a bigger city. He comes from Columbus, Georgia, which is just a few hours south of the city of Atlanta today. You can take a highway back then, you know, take a little longer, but 
And he tries to make it big in the bigger city of Atlanta, where I grew up. And it's the 1870s. The story is crazy because there's fires, as there are a lot in this period. And his business burns down twice. And he goes bankrupt. He has no cash. I joke with my students. I say, if you're thinking about the person who's going to create the best brand the world's ever made, you're not thinking this is the guy, right? He's sick. He's got a drug problem. He doesn't have money and his business is burned out. And I always turn to the business students in my class and I say, okay, so what would you do under these circumstances? And inevitably, somebody comes up with it. They're like, I just copy somebody and try and make money off what they're doing because I'm obviously not doing very well. And that's what he does. Another part of the history that, you know, you think about that quote that they don't like is that they spend their whole career trying to beat back competition and brands that are trying to copy Coke's colas. The whole thing is like, we want to beat back anybody who's trying to copy us. But from the very beginning, what Pemberton does is he copies this drink called Vin Mariani. Mariani, okay. And it's named after this guy, Angelo Mariani, who makes this drink, it becomes very popular in France. And everybody's drinking it in the 1870s. Ulysses S. Grant, our president, Queen Victoria of England loves it, the Pope. And it's a red wine mixed with the coca leaf that would have infused it with small amounts of the alkaloid that we'd find in, you know, street cocaine kind of kind of stimulant. That's what the coca leaf contains. When you say sort of stimulant, like what kind of levels of, like, is it like doing a line of Coke? Is it that? Or is it just a kind of a soupçon, a, just a, a gentle little pick-me-up? You point out something really important, which is, you know, it's important to point out this is not like doing a line or a bump, as they'd say, of cocaine. <laughs> and in fact, that's something I want to stress is that at this time, we're talking about the coca leaf. It's a very small amount. A lot of the scholars have tried to figure it out. It's hard because we can't go back and you know do chemical studies, but a very, very small amount. In fact, it's akin to what you could have if you go to Peru today. One of the places you can drink coca tea legally, one of the only places, is in places like Peru. And I guarantee you the effect you'll have, I, I've done this, is much less than an espresso from Starbucks or whatever your fav favorite coffee right. shop is, Right. And I think that's important because over time, the coca leaf, much to the chagrin of Peruvian coca farmers, became connected with the bump, as we said, you know, the purified cocaine that people use and people think of. It's an easy mythology when we think about coca. Oh, it used to contain cocaine. And that sounds quite exciting and right. transgressive and interesting. And, but also those coca leaves used to be chewed. It was people chewed those like a sort of proto chewing gum. And still do. And yet in the 1960s, there's documents showing Coke going to the United Nations, Ralph Hayes, who was one of the vice presidents of the company, pushing not only to limit the distribution of coca leaves internationally because of this argument that it could be turned into cocaine, but also trying to prevent the indigenous chewing, the practices of, that go back to the Inca as well. And what I argue in the book is this is, you know, Coke trying to gain monopsony power, that is single buyer access to the coca leaf and preventing anyone else from having the coca product available to them. And so I say this because I spent time down with people who, you know, represent coca farmers and they would love nothing more, Dallas, than to sell you coca tea, you know, that you could have at your local tea shop or wherever it might be here in the United States because of that Boston Tea Party. You know, we tend to go towards coffee. You know, it's one of these things where it could change the world for a lot of these farmers. And, and yet, Coke was actually instrumental in shaping the international laws 
that kind of conflated cocaine with coca leaves and prevented other people from getting access to this leaf over time. So we've got Jim Pemberton. He's been injured in the Civil War. He's addicted to morphine. He's a pharmacist. And he's discovered Vin Mariani, which is this red wine that has sort of cocoa leaves. This is sort of Coke version one. It's an alcoholic wine, red wine, but it's got this cocoa leaf in it that has a little bit of cocaine, but not too much. Just a little... Yeah, and just for the, it's John, not James, but John Pemberton. Yeah, he's John. Sorry, my apologies. That's okay. And he's looking at this, and it's doing great. And as you said, everyone's like, "This makes me feel great." And why not? You know, it's got this little stimulant. It's got wine in it. You know, Georgia is not known in the United States for its wine culture, although today actually it is. You can go to North Georgia, and there's a budding wine tours that are going on, as it seems to be everywhere. I guess everyone's like, let's just check out post-2020. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. it's hard to get this. <laughs> yeah. But he sells it. He sells it in his shop. Is that the idea? He's sort of, Or is he producing it himself or he's buying it in? Yeah, or- he's bringing in this stuff. He's mixing the various things together. Uh, one of the things he becomes interested in is the cola nut, which is worth mentioning. Right, as in Coca-Cola. Exactly, but right. not with a C, but with a K. Um, they change it to a C just because it looks good for the branding. But I note this because, again, for the rest of the history that we're going to talk about, Coke does not want to acknowledge its connection to the coca leaf. In fact, you can hear you know, discussions where they've been pushed on this, and it's like they fumble over themselves about the origins of how this works. And yet it's in the name you know, that these things are there. And that shows you what Pemberton's doing. He's looking for international global products that he thinks are stimulants. He actually thinks the cola nut, which comes from West Africa, it has caffeine, and that's the stimulant he's looking for there as opposed to cocaine, which is in the coca leaf. And he's thinking, what a combo. And he actually thinks that for whatever reason, that the caffeine in the cola nut is better than, say, the caffeine that you might find in coffee or tea. I'm not sure exactly why he thinks that, but that's one of the things he's interested in. How do you just discover something like the cola nut? Is that because he was a pharmacist? He had knowledge of all these sort of natural ingredients. You laid it out for me in the sense, again, I, when I'm teaching students, they like to think of this Jim Crow South as such a backwards place, as I mentioned earlier. I think that serves Americans very well because it's easy to say, look, that economic place where things were kind of backward, there goes all the social institutions that were so backward as well. When in fact... You have this modern kind of guy who's reading all these interesting things and yet also can be a part of this oppressive social injustice of the time as well. So, yes, he's reading all these things. He's keeping up with the latest kind of science, as it were. And, yeah, he decides, let's do this. So he creates this drink, and I have the original advertisement, Pemberton's Wine of Coca, not very original. And, again, if you think about it, like, for the rest of their history, they're saying, stop copying us, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, yeah. wait a minute. You started as a knockoff, you know? That's quite an American story. I mean, that's part of your thesis as well as your book is there is something uniquely American about it. And it's not it's borrowing. It's this, is, it's this postmodern taking from everywhere and creating something new. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just a very quintessential story. In fact, if you look at the product, we think of it as the quintessential American product. A lot of people do in the U.S. at least. They'll say, okay, it's like America. When I get a Coke in wherever, in some small corner store, it feels like a little taste of home. When in fact, if you think about everything that's in it, it's from everywhere else. It's the coal nut from West Africa. It's the Casile oil from China. Well, that's it. We're going to come to that in a little bit. That idea of the model of Coca-Cola, if you like, the fact that actually what makes Coca-Cola so successful is the sort of the not owning of everything, but the licensing of, of things, I suppose. So far, we've got red wine, we've got cocoa leaf, and we've got cola nut. 
what would it have tasted like if I if I'd bought a Coke from John Pemberton then and had a I mean, it would presumably alcoholic still. Yeah, one would assume good, <laughs> depending on where the wine comes from, I guess. I've never traced that fully. Like, you know, what was the importation route? Does a bottle exist of it? Like, does somewhere, like, do you think there's kind of like an old cellar where there's a bottle of Coke? Wow. You know, it's so Pemberton's wine of Coca. Could you find it? You know, the original advertisement, I'll tell you these things that I know, selling 500 bottles a day. Now, again, this is the Gilded Age. There's no regulation. You could say whatever you want. So who knows what he was doing? But one would imagine it would sell. I mean, like, why not? But notice the price point. I think that's important. You know, it's $1. And so the big change that's about to happen is it's going to go from $1 to $0.05. And that means that everybody can buy it. So I do think it's a relatively unique product that would have been hard to find. You can go to the Emory Archives, where I've spent a lot of time in Atlanta, and there are jars of cola nuts. One wonders how old they are. I don't know that are in the collection that Coca-Cola has, but I don't remember any Pemberton's wine of cocoa. You should try and make it. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to make. Just get some wine, crush up a cocoa leaf, get your little microplane out and grate in a cola nut. Well, I know that people have tried to recreate the secret formula, you know, and make the drink. But yeah, (laughs) let's do the original. I'm down with that as well. I think it would be delicious. And frankly... I think there's this, you know, this idea that this cocaine has become, again, this, this, the, oh, coca, oh no, this is dangerous. Even when I had coca tea in Peru, you know, people, oh, oh so you had cocaine, you know, and I'm thinking, this is the problem that we've taken these things that have these deep histories, and by the way, are great for altitude sickness and all sorts of things, and made them these kind of boogeymen. Well, we could talk about marijuana, we could talk about all these things that have been, for various reasons, excluded from our beverages and things. That price point's interesting. So it went from a dollar. At what point did it cease? And why did he take the alcohol out? Why did it stop becoming a wine? And why did he go, okay, I want to market this not as a an expensive ordering a bottle of wine, but when did it become a soda, I suppose? It's important that you've said alcohol. Like it wasn't even the cocaine that's a problem at all in the reformulation originally. It's the alcohol that becomes the issue. And to your point, it's Atlanta. It's local issues that make this so. The city of Atlanta in which Pemberton's operating moves to ban the sale of alcohol. And this is a before prohibition in the United States on a national level. But we're in the Protestant South. There's a lot of evangelical preachers, temperance. This is causing all sorts of problems. But just pause to think about Pemberton as I'm doing now as a historian, more so. You know, my gosh, I've got this thing. It's selling $500 a bottle. I've struggled. I have no money. Come on. You know, now I've got to ref formulate this bad boy. And that's what becomes Coca-Cola, that the the temperance non-alcoholic version that emerges in 1886, that's the year of the start of Coke, is, I guess, Pemberton's wine of cocoa without the alcohol. And there it is. You have it with water instead of wine. And did he think, I know what we'll do. We'll put some carbon dioxide in it as well and make it fizzy. Was it the first soda? Like, what was the first? Were there other fizzy drinks? Absolutely. Then? All sorts yeah. of different things going on at the time. And, and you know, the soda fountains are there. That's what's interesting. He's selling syrup originally. There's no bottles in 1886. In fact, it would take years for the bottles to really become something that they thought was profitable. Asa Candler, who takes over the company in the 1890s, he says, I'm not going to bottle this because... Who wants to drink this at home? It's it's all about the social activity. The pub really kind of experienced these soda fountains of the Gilded Age. Just remind us because we're ignorant as to what soda fountains mean in the UK. These were sites that much like pubs, 
that were, you could argue, like part pharmacies, part social engagement locations where you could come in and you'd have someone behind the bar and it'd be marble. By the way, it would be elaborate. In Atlanta, you know, he would be in the Kimball House and other places that would be the premier places to go and socialize. Very middle class thing in many ways. Also, again, we're Jim Crow, so racially segregated and a space in which a lot of white consumers would be going into a meet. And in this case, what would happen is Pemberton would sell his concoction. They would have other syrups and elixirs and things that they'd have behind the bar. And in this case, the soda fountain operator would put in about a couple ounces of this dark syrup, which by this point, again, you've taken out the wine, but he's added other things. That's why it's sweet too. He's trying to replace the sweetness of that wine Things like that. So he's put sugar in, presumably. I think by my research, it's something like five pounds of sugar per gallon of syrup. So if you can imagine a gallon jug of milk with five pounds of sugar, and I'm sorry, I'm not doing the conversions to, but that's what he was saying right then, right? So the gallon, you know, it's an incredible amount of sugar. And he's replacing that sweetness of the wine. But then he's also adding in, as I said, casseal. It was kind of like a cinnamony flavor. He's adding yes. in nutmeg and different oils and things to try and make it have this flavor that people will like. And that's what's being mixed in. And then the soda fountain operator would ask the, add the water there at the point of sale. If I get into my DeLorean and go back and order a Coke rather than a Pepsi free. <laughs> well, you wouldn't be able to get a Pepsi yet because Pepsi is 1890s. So... Yeah. Perhaps it hasn't been invented yet. But would I recognize that and go, oh, it's Coke? I think so. But it's a good point because the formula does change over time. Coke says, oh, my gosh, you know, the secret formula has been sacrosanct ever since. But things like making sure that all the cocaine was removed. We'll get to that. But all these different things. So I think you'd recognize it. I really do. Okay. So it, so it exists as a syrup rather than something you could like buy in a glass bottle. When did it suddenly go from just being this thing to this sensation well poor pemberton he's gonna die <laughs> and <laughs> that's what happens right at his door that sucks did he make some money back i mean it sounds like he was on the verge of coming out it's not like he was completely destitute but he never ever gets to see this thing become what it becomes you know it's hard to think about his life and the confederacy and all these things it's dark and this it's like all history it's this mess of human existence but you know, there is a side of me that thinks, wow, he creates this thing and then it's kind of taken over. And Asa Candler is the person who takes it over. He's a pharmacist in Atlanta who sees an opportunity. He's a kind of puritanical Sunday school teacher, very serious business person. Every picture I've seen of him, he has a slight frown on his face. And he's just a hardworking kind of guy who is de deeply religious. In fact, years later in his life, I found some of his letters at Emory. One wonders how sincere it is, but he's writing to his brother saying, like, what has my life become in a way? You know, all I've done is do this. I really need to devote myself back to God and all of this, which I think is relevant, you know, because he's very conservative and things like the cocaine issue and things like that are going to become problems laid down the road. And one could argue he's also conservative maybe as a business person. But you said bottles. These people in Mississippi and other states were beginning to bottle this. And we're finding that we can get it in the countryside and it's making us a lot of money. And he's kind of saying, I don't know. I think it's going to ruin the brand because bottling at that time was very rudimentary. You know, it's not as sophisticated as today with sterilization. And so he's thinking, 
if this gets out there and these little people start doing this, does it ruin my brand? And he resists it for a while until two Chattanooga lawyers in 1899 come to his door and say, let's try this on a large scale. And he says, you know what? Give it a shot. He doesn't really think anything of it. And it turns out to be the best decision ever. Step back in time with me, Tristan Hughes, on the Ancients from History hit as we unearth Pompeii's buried secrets in a special mini-series. You'll discover what life was like in this town before the eruption of Vesuvius, the bustling streets, the roar of the gladiators, and the hidden lives of sex workers. Lost for over 1,500 years and then uncovered, Pompeii's saga continues. With the help of leading experts, We'll bust myths and reveal startling new research. So get ready for a dramatic journey through the echoes of the past. Experience Pompeii like never before on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.
forget about the recipe, the shape of the bottles, the design of those bottles are so iconic. Was that the original bottle, if we imagine the glass Coca-Cola bottles? And I want to ask you about the logo as well. Like, are we at the point with the Coca-Cola logo? That We are at the point of the Coca-Cola logo that was started, Frank Robinson, early in, I want to say even 1886. You can see that kind of Spencerian script. And again, the colon being changed to the C for marketing app purposes. I mention all that because I do like to emphasize there is a natural resource story here that likes to be overlooked. There's a key ingredient that they, at some point, say, stop acknowledging. If you looked at the early advertisements, it would have had the coca leaf on it. Look, it comes from Peru. Look, this is connected to this in the colonet. Gradually, those things are lost. But yes, the Spencerian script is there, but the bottle is not. That comes later in the teens when they're trying to create a bottle that would be identifiable. One of the ways in which to beat back all those knockoffs which they started with, is to have a glass supplier that would create a unique bottle. And so the hobble skirt bottle, which represented the hobble skirt of the time, kind of a feminine thing. They're trying to model it on this fashion of the hobble skirt. There's some discussion about whether the colonut and its shape might have informed the glass design. Lots of thoughts on this, but that comes later. Nevertheless, you would see lots of these after 1899, you know, glass and bottles, some of them brown, some of them green, you know, bottles being sold all over the place. And by, I think, 1894, there's a document that says, where Candler says something like, by the end of the 1890s, we're in every state in the country. And that shows you the swiftness with which they're able to spread. What was it about the swiftness? Like, Was it a soda craze that was going on in America? And then when did it go international? Yeah. Soon afterwards? There was. And I think, you know, there's a lot of speculation about why this is. One thing I should note is that this is five cents now. And so you've got a mass consumer item. This is also the dawn when we're teaching the history of American business of big brands, because you now have the railroads. The first transcontinental railroad in the United States was built in 1869. So now we can crisscross the nation in the telegraph system, not only across the country, but then you have the transatlantic telegraph, which always baffles me that this is an 1860s thing. I cannot get my head around it still. Anyway, yeah, and that we yeah. have still <laughs> this kind of technology connecting us. So, you know, all this is happening. You have the vertical integration of Carnegie Steel and Rockefeller and his oil company, Six Place. So, and you, so you just have this ability to have these vertically integrated enterprises that can mass produce, whether it be sugar or all the things that you need to make all these products. And consumers are looking for them. You have new country stores, not just stores in the cities, but you have these kind of uh, chain stores that are emerging in the early 20th century. And this new consumer culture around trying the newest, coolest drinks and things. So here's Coca-Cola inserting itself into that. And it is important that he's selling syrup. So it's also the swiftness back to how you can get it out there on these rail lines. And it's the water, which is 80% of the product that's at the point of sale. Yeah, I've heard you mention it, actually. You, you sort of liken it to something, to a company a, a bit like Microsoft, whereby you're not selling great big chunks of machinery. Actually, what you're selling is little stuff that you can plug into other things. And that actually helps that spread of the brand, if you like. I appreciate you getting into the wonkiness because I love that stuff. This is what allowed me to get this job here at Ohio State was to find something mm. <laughs> interesting because, you know, people who had written about American business at this time wrote about the vertically integrated companies. They were kind of the models for people like Alfred Chandler, who's behind me here, Pulitzer Prize winning historian who wrote a great book that's about how these companies were able to build steel and all that stuff. 
that's all true, but where's U.S. Steel? How are they doing today? I mean, you know, that's not the model in the long run that ended up being the most resilient, I would say, and the most profitable in the long run. Coke followed a very different strategy. It was decentralized. It was de-vertically uh, integrated. It was disintegrated in a way. And that's how you spread fast. You have all these little bottlers who are taking out loans from their local banks, starting these little bottling companies. And all Canley's really doing is sending out syrup. And then it's exploding out at the point of sale when the water's added. It's kind of like, you know, remember those toys we used to get where you have like a little pill and you could put it in water and then expands, you know, once you get out there. Yeah. I feel like Coke is that model. And you could argue that's the same thing as you said with Microsoft. He's selling floppy disks, you know, and selling the software as opposed to the hardware in many ways. That's what made it such a swift expansion for Bill Gates in the later part of the 20th century. And that's the other thing you talk about as well is, is the fact that within that model, Coca-Cola doesn't own anything. It sort of outsources everything. And, you know, and by not owning everything, everything is much cheaper for it to produce. When you say it, it, just, it takes me back to the moment that we saw that. You know, Because again, I was versed in the vertically integrated historiography of, okay, this is how businesses do it. He's going to own plantations of sugar and he's going to manage all this so that he can control his supply. It turns out he did the exact opposite. And the idea was to not own sugar plantations in the Caribbean, which, by the way, Hershey Chocolate <laughs> Company did and other companies did to try and control their own supply. It turns out that owning sugar plantations in the Caribbean is risky in this era, especially because as the Gilded Age is bumping up, you've got all these people producing sugar at such a huge volume. They would, you know, go crazy over one cent increases in the price of sugar. But still, it's like three cents a pound. So go for it. You put as much sugar as you want. And it was when I was studying the caffeine chapter that I realized that, you know, they didn't own caffeine plants. Where did Coke get their caffeine? And it turned out Monsanto was doing it. Very quickly, tell us. It's interesting because it's tea leaves. You mentioned the Boston Tea Party. Earlier. Exactly. Old tea leaves that weren't being used. Uh, Monsanto, who chemically produce caffeine from coal tar, I think, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. The short of it is, and I couldn't Google it back in the day. I was like, where do they get it? You know. And then in the archives, it was clear. So again, they don't own it. It's Monsanto, this little St. Louis chemical company started in 1901 that figures out a way to take the, the tea leaves that are basically damaged and broken. They were called waste tea leaves at the time. Nobody wants them. And you could argue this is environmental. You know, They recycle it. They say, look, there's caffeine in those leaves that are dirty that no one wants to drink, but you can get the caffeine out. They invest in it heavily, and they become one of Coke's chief caffeine suppliers. Monsanto, which would go on to create Roundup and all the herbicides, would <laughs> yes. not have existed. In fact, I wrote a book on Monsanto, so I went in and got those records. They had to wait for Coca-Cola's payment to come in to pay their workers. That's how significant Coca-Cola was to the brand. And you're right. Ultimately, over time, you think Coke grows 1.9 billion servings a day. They had to get more caffeine. And it turns out in the 1950s, decaf coffee takes off. Nobody's really drinking decaf coffee in the early part of the 20th century. Why would you do that? Why do you do that even now? The no. whole point of coffee is... No, I never <laughs> understand it. Correct. I never understand it. it makes, in fact, it makes me want to lash out I when I see it. People do start getting concerned about caffeine. And so you see this emerging. And Coke, watch again the model of not owning. It just shifts. The General Foods, Maxwell House... Terrible coffee, by the way, at the time. But worst coffee. Sorry, Maxwell sorry, House, Maxwell House. still exist. They don't. Do they still? I exist? believe so. But oh, okay. Well, I'm, I apologize. You know, storied history, and here we go. 1950. They do this, 
And Coke is able to get their caffeine from the decaf that's caffeine that's removed in that coffee. But notice this. There's a letter to Monsanto where Monsanto says, hey, what are you doing? You know, we've invested in all these plants and everything else. And you're switching. And Robert Woodruff just says, hey, man, you know, it's business. Because that's the model that you can always pivot. If something cheaper comes along, because you don't have that infrastructure, you can just go to the next best thing. That's the key thing. That's the key thing. They're nimble and mobile. And don't own anything. You mentioned coal tar, and I'd be remiss because everyone should know this. Yes, just very quickly. So everyone's going to go, what the hell, coal tar? Yes, the byproduct of turning coal into coke, C-O-K-E, not the drink, but the material used to make steel. It's basically coal without its impurities. Well, hang on, because we call Coca-Cola Coke, and sometimes that is spelt C-O-K-E, even by the Coca-Cola company, but they're not referring to that kind of thing. No, coke. this is different. And by the way, Coke, didn't want that to happen at first. They wanted to just be Coca-Cola, and then they realized everyone's going to Coke, so they, they went along with it. But yes, this is a different type of Coke. We're talking about the material coal without its impurities. Leaves behind this thing called coal tar, and it turns out that that tar, it's literally black, syrupy kind of substance, has all these different carbon-based compounds that you can change into things like caffeine. And Monsanto figures this out in the 1940s and gives this to Coke. But Coke actually box at it thinking, oh, I don't think people are going to drink this, you know, because they'll find out that it comes from this. It'll be problematic. But over time, Coke does ultimately use synthetic caffeine, which now is largely produced from natural gas. So again, you can take these compounds and methylate them and then turn it. So, so it's funny. If you're drinking Coke today, you're drinking, and they'll say this on their website. This is what I want to ask you because we're, we're running out of time a bit. But if, when I drink Coke today, what the hell am I putting into my body? I'm like, is there still cocaine in it? No. Yes, no. Coca leaves, but no cocaine. So is, is a GM-produced cocoa plant that doesn't have cocaine in it? Good question. They tried to do that in the 1960s and failed. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. It failed. Coca-Cola created a secret operation to grow coca shops. so awesome. That Area 51. <laughs> Area 51. And, and failed. So no, they decoconized the coca leaf. And this is still part of their secret formula today. The flavor of the coca leaf without the cocaine. By the way, this is something Coke will not acknowledge. Okay, so we've got some sugar, obviously, or high fructose corn syrup, or some, some kind of sweetener, water, cocoa flavoring from the leaf, but without the active ingredient. Caffeine from God knows where, maybe, maybe from tea leaves, but maybe from probably from fossil fuels. Their website says, and this confirms what my reporting would say, tea leaves. Our caffeine comes mm. from tea leaves, so the waste tea leaves. So that's still happening from coffee. So you could say the decaf market is still part of their sourcing. And then they say appropriate sources. And I'm here to tell <laughs> you that the appropriate sources that. is, again, taking this chemistry of taking fossil fuel, petrochemicals, methylating these products and turning them into caffeine. And uh, the biggest suppliers are probably in China, manufacturers of this. We have a particular problem with those sorts of stories because we always associate chemicals with evil. Chemicals are just chemicals. They're natural. I mean, we change them and do things to them. Well, back in the day, in the 19-teens, the biggest thing that became a huge liability for Coke was the caffeine. And to your point, what the original kind of FDA, it wasn't called that then, but it was like the initial regulatory agency, said was, we have no problem with caffeine. It's a chemical that's found in coffee and natural substances. What we have a problem with is that it's added intentionally to this drink and could have these effects. 
Now, today, people could disagree with that and say, whatever, that's fine. I, I drink my Coca-Cola and I'm good. But the argument at the time was there's something different between kind of adding the stimulant intentionally and making this drink as opposed to it being naturally in the drink itself. So I think that was kind of the debate. And Coke wins, although it was a, a huge trial. Is the caffeine in Coca-Cola dangerous? And by the way, it wasn't cocaine. That was not the issue. It was the caffeine. The government would bring in these folks who one could imagine sitting at the jittering, you know, <laughs> live wires <laughs> yeah. saying, look at these guys, you know. But Coke wins that case and it's a big deal. But the, one of the things they agree to do is to cut the caffeine content dramatically. So back to the sacrosanct secret formula that never changes. Well, of course, it's changed over time. I want to ask you about that secret formula. That's a marketing gimmick, the fact that it's, it's a bit like Kentucky Fried Chicken has a secret formula. Exactly. Any, anyone can figure out what the hell's in it. You know, Anyone with taste buds or some knowledge of chemistry could presumably figure out what's in it. Well, I'll tell you a story because I find the scholars of Coca-Cola were all part of the same community. So I'll tell a story from Mark Pendergrass, who had the ability to go into the Coke archives in the 1990s. And he came across a document that's featured in the appendix of his book, where he says, I found this, it's, it's the secret formula. It has to be. Because, you know, based on, you spend 10 years as we have, in this case now, 20 years looking at this, you kind of say, oh, this maps on all these different things. This has got to be it. And so he goes to the corporate headquarters, to the executives that have allowed him to go into their archives. This is a real story. And he says, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to publish this. And there's this kind of interesting exchange where there's kind of this ha-ha Coke just being like, Go ahead, you know, publish it. Is it like a kind of magic envelope in a safe guarded by stormtroopers or something? like? They have it as such. They, they, they describe it as being in some kind of vault and et cetera. And, you know, only right. two yeah. people at one time yeah. and all this kind of stuff. But I think, you know, when he finds, as one does when you do this, like some writings and it's Pemberton talking about it and it's just kind of scribble. And by the way, the same thing happened at Emory Archives. You know, they'd be talking about the coca leaves, which Coke doesn't like to talk about. And sometimes I'd see things like, don't talk about this here, but it'd already be done because I've already seen the other letter. <laughs> so, you know, things get through. But the point is, they basically laughed and said, look, you publish this and say it's the secret formula. We're just going to say it's not. And it goes to your point. It is the myth of the secret formula that's more important than the actual reality of it for them. And, you know, one could argue it has good effect. Briefly as well, they did. I know they did change. I remember... Was it must have been mid eighties or late eighties when they brought out new Coke and everyone freaked out and then they had to bring in Coke Classic. Certainly in America, where I was at the time, Coke Classic was the drink. Yeah. So basically the story there is that Pepsi, our nemesis from the very <laughs> beginning of the story, reemerges with strong leadership and a really aggressive marketing campaigns in the in the eighties. One of the things they do is they get Michael Jackson. I remember which is about the biggest thing you could probably get you know, to brand yourself in the 80s. And Coke starts freaking out. They also do the Pepsi challenge where they do this blind taste test and people supposedly like this taste of Pepsi more. And Coke's really kind of freaking out. They teach this still today in business school as a case study because Coke basically says in 85 when they launched this, new Coke, it wasn't like there was a new brand. They were saying, we're not going to provide you that old formula. We're only going to sell you this new formula because we have decided it is the best. Slightly sweeter, by all accounts, was the idea. And again, to try and beat back this Pepsi insurgency. But as we all know, who lived through it, it was a disaster. Everyone hated it. And there was suspicion that Coke did this intentionally. 
And I'm here to say, somebody's looked at it very closely, they were not that smart, as Don <laughs> Coe put it. They really did, I think, believe their marketing folks, and it didn't work. One of the things, though, that's clear from a document that was found in the archives, Pendergrass was able to find this. And so again, I'm building off his documentation here, but it's great. He found a document that suggests that the coca leaf, the flavor that we talked about, was removed temporarily as well in that new Coke. And why not? It's the war on drugs, Reagan. You have this coca trade that no one knows about. Why not go ahead and get rid of it? But it's very clear in 1988, I found the New York Times piece where they, one of the last times that Coke publicly admitted that the coca leaf was back in the drink with Coke Classic, which is what they come back with. Last thing I'll say about this is if you go to the wonderful world of Coke, as they call it, the museum, the happiness factory in Atlanta, where you can see the history of all this, there used to be, and still hopefully is, a answering machine that you can pick up. And it's an old answering machine for 1985. And you can listen to these people calling in to Coke and saying, you have killed Jesus. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. And to them, so it worked for, in their favor, weirdly, even though I don't think, as some do, that they did this intentionally. But I don't think anyone would have noticed if they hadn't have said anything. I think people got angry about it was because they knew that Coke had changed something. And Coke was one of those sacrosanct brands that must never be changed, that was surrounded by this mystique. Because I don't, I don't remember it ever tasting that different. Not that I particularly remember. Exactly. In a way, it was the story of the change that created the backlash rather than the recipe. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I think that's right. I just think, you know, people had their response informed by their own psychological exactly. perception that it had changed. Yeah. And yet, I obsessed about this too with the coca leaf because you look at one of the vice presidents and I kept saying, why did they go to such elaborate links creating this secret operation in Hawaii to grow coca and all this stuff if it's just this little flavor in the drink? And there's this letter in the archives from the vice president of the company where you can see the religion has not just seeped into the consumers – but to the executives themselves, where they say something like, if we remove this, you know, the consumers will find out and we'll be ruined when <laughs> no one knows, no one knows that yeah. coca leaf is in it. So I think it shows you that there's this kind of faith, religion that's deep in it. Yeah. Well, it's that story. It's the power of the story and things we, we sort of buy. There's a book I've been reading, which you'd really like, actually. It's called Broadcast Hysteria. It's the story of the Orson Welles War of the World radio program. And you will know this story because, of course, everyone went mad and everyone started running around because they thought it was real. Except they didn't. No one th exactly. thought it was real. It's just that's the story we've told ourselves because we really like the story. It's a really interesting thesis about how the kind of mythology of story affects our decisions and our telling of history and our remembrance of things past. Totally. Because you have to go back and think radio is, is breaking in. Yeah. And it's all about this rivalry of sorts. And the moral panics that go, that go with it, even if they didn't actually exist. Really interesting. I could talk to you all day, Bart, about because it's really, it, you're fantastic to talk to. Likewise. Just very quickly, just to end, what's the moral of this story? I'm trying to work it out what the kind of moral of this story is. Your book and is so much more than just the history of a recipe. It's In a way, it's the history of America, really. Certainly the history of economics and the history of branding. And I always joke you could read this book two ways. You could read this book in my history of capitalism class, which I teach here at Ohio State, and figure out how to make a lot of money. Uh, you know, <laughs> Figuring out how to insulate yourself from these really volatile supply chains and, and creating this kind of nimble structure of a business. Mm. But you could read it another way and think about a business that 
you know, has had a big environmental impact. And I think it forces all of us to question what's in what we drink and what's in what we eat. Coke has worked very hard to brand itself as the real thing, always Coca-Cola, the pause that refreshes. None of those things reveal to you what's going on behind the scene. And as somebody who traveled to Peru to talk to, you know, the folks who represent Coca farmers in these spaces to learn about these supply chains, there are real people at the end of these stories who were affected, I think, by how Coca-Cola managed and controlled this brand. And so I'd hope that that's the thing that we all do, that we ask more critical questions about, like, where did that caffeine come from? You know, because I think it might mean that we change some of the, uh, the systems within our food system that are potentially, uh, you know, not so great for our health and, and also not so great for the planet. So we've only got to touch on a little bit of it here, but I think that's the larger story in the book. Do you think corporations change as well as a result? I mean, corporations only do what we do. They respond to how we behave. And do you think by the clarity that you're giving to these sorts of stories, do you think it has a positive effect, positive feedback loop, if you want, to the corporations themselves? It's probably the biggest question. You can just feel the weight of that question on myself because I've been feeling this a lot in the last 10 years because I've just finished these books on these big corporations and I keep asking, is it going to change anything? And I've even been invited inside a company to talk about Agent Orange at Monsanto and all these different things. And uh, they've asked me, like, what would you do? And I've said, well, this is what I would do. And here I am two years later after some of those conversations and still some of the same products are on the shelves. So the question is, can you move them? I think history suggests to us that there are good people inside these firms, but the bottom line drives a lot of these decisions. And that's no surprise. But the history also shows us when you put rules in place, regulations, and say, hey, you can't do this. Turns out that businesses actually adapt. I think the, the larger lesson of this story is that we should be folks who fight for the rules. We actually created this brand in a lot of ways. We built the infrastructure, the public water supplies that feed this enterprise, the recycling systems that give them back their materials. We pay for that as taxpayers. And I think we should probably demand more in terms of making sure that social justice emissions and environmental you know, goals are met. I think that's going to require things from outside these businesses. If we wait for these firms to do it on their own, I think the message is very clear. We're going to be waiting for some time. I'll leave one last statistic on that. There was a study that came out recently that looked at the top businesses in our economy, some 300 firms, and it looked at the success rate of meeting promises related to environmental sustainability. And the success rate for these businesses was 4%. So when you hear things like net zero and we're getting there and we're close, 4% of these promises end up getting met. So I think that requires us to say, what are the rules we can fight for as citizens that push this faster, the change that we want to see in the world? I'll leave it at that. Bart, thank you very much. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to tell your friends and family. Don't forget to like and subscribe and do all those things. And if you're in a good mood, why don't you go and buy yourself um, a bottle of Coca-Cola? And don't forget, if you've got a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com. We love your suggestions. We love doing your suggestions. So get in touch and we can get them on the list. See you next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.